At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Glad that you are here with us today. Now I want to begin by uh, just acknowledging this right here is a quarter. It's a quarter. Has the value of 25 cents or one quarter of a U.S. dollar. This little guy right here is silver in color. And yet it's not made of silver any longer. That stopped being the case in 1965. Today it is an alloy mix of metals. There are over 500 million quarters in circulation in the U.S. as we are here this morning. Now the quarter weighs about 5.67 grams and has 119 reeds around the edge. I have just given you some details about a quarter, so I'm going to quiz your knowledge about what is on quarter. What president is on the face of the quarter? (laughs) What president is on the face of the quarter? George Washington. Well done. What's on the back of the quarter? A a what? The eagle. Hang on a second. Okay. Now for a couple of the harder questions. On the face of the quarter, what word is on the top? It's there, but it's not on the top. What's on the top? Liberty. Liberty is the word on the top of the quarter. What phrase is on the back of the quarter? It's a little Latin phrase. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. You might say, why, Pastor, on this Memorial Day weekend are you giving us a brief lesson on the U.S. quarter? Well, I will tell you, uh, it's because most of us worshiping here this morning recognize that there are two sides to a quarter. There's a quarter with George Washington on it, and there's a quarter with the eagle on it. We're familiar with that concept. They represent two sides, communicate two different things. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that represents a side of God's character that is rarely seen and rarely discussed. We often focus on the front, on this side of God. We often stay and focus only upon the president's side. We rarely turn the coin over to see the other side of the character of our God. So often in the church today, we communicate the love and the mercy and the grace of our God. And we should, because it's true. All of those things are true of our almighty God, and yet, just like the quarter, there is another side to the character of our God. Our God is righteous. Our God is holy. And therefore, 
our God is just. And so that means to be true to himself, God must exercise judgment even upon those whom he loves. So there is grace and there is justice. We're going to talk about both of those, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence this morning acknowledging that you are good and loving and merciful and gracious to your people. And for that, we are thankful. For that, we gather and sing your praises. But today, God, we also recognize that there is another side of your character that is also true and real, and we must worship that as well, and that is your justice. God, justice sometimes is a scary thing for sinners like me, sinners like us. God, as we enter into your presence today, we pray that you would offer us that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy, not because of anything we've done, but because of your son, because of Jesus. He is what gives us the opportunity to worship. He is what gives your people the opportunity to enter into your presence to be taught by your word. And so today, God, we ask that you would give us an extra measure of your grace and your, your mercy as we open your word because what we're looking at today is a difficult passage for us to wrap our minds around. So give us eyes to see the truth of this word. God, we ask for ears to hear this truth and then the humility of heart to respond to what this truth teaches us. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week two of our sermon series called Good Morning, Taking Our Sorrows to the Savior. And that's where we, as Pastor Ben has mentioned, we are examining the book of Lamentations. Now, Lamentations is an important book in the Scriptures because what it does is it shows us how to mourn and it shows us how we are to grieve. And as I mentioned last week when we started this, uh, this sermon series, I can think of no better time for our culture, for our church family, for us as individuals to invest in learning how to mourn well to invest in a time where we actually pause to reflect on the pain and the anxiety and the loss and the doubts and the questions that we've all experienced within the past year or so. But it asks something of us, doesn't it? It asks us not to just walk out these doors and say everything is fine. It asks for us to reflect upon our lives if you are in Christ today, this is what God asks of us, to reflect on our lives and come to him humbly for real life guidance on how we are to walk out this season. So we're going to turn to Lamentations chapter 2. But for us to understand the significance of that text, we need to remember what we looked at last week in chapter 1. 
So let me give you a quick refresher. God's people have been beaten and taken captive and driven from the land that God had given them, driven from the city of Jerusalem. Essentially, what they've experienced is a total reversal of the miraculous deliverance that they had experienced uh, when God brought them out from captivity under Pharaoh. It's a complete 180. Cities destroyed. Now they're in captivity once again. So, because of that truth, because that's what's happening in that culture, the prophet Jeremiah pens a lament, a poem. Now remember, a lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's turn to Lamentations chapter 2. We're going to read a few separate segments today of Jeremiah or of the prophet's lament. And what I think we're going to find it is going to teach us much about the character of our God. So let's begin with Lamentations 2, beginning at verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud... He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. So in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of his enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, a consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand sent like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Let's pause right there. The prophet is clear where the destruction of Jerusalem finds its origin. It finds its origin at the hand of a righteous, almighty God. So what we read in this text is God burning with righteous anger because his chosen people have repeatedly broken their special covenant relationship with him. Repeatedly. Now remember, God has established this exclusive relation with with the people of Israel. And what he asks in return for that exclusive relationship is faithfulness. We see this detailed in Exodus chapter 19. Here's what it says. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and you shall be a holy nation. So let's unpack that for just a second. If you obey my voice, what does that mean? That means if you follow my word, if you follow my teaching, if you keep my covenant... That means if I am your God, if you maintain that worship of me instead of chasing after idols. 
were reading Lamentations because God's people didn't. They didn't obey his voice and they didn't keep his covenant. And so the prophet, he laments. Now, as we dig a little deeper today, we're going to see something significant taking place. God's disposition changes from being for the Israelites to being strongly against them. That's, we, that's what we just heard in that text, and we're going to look at it a little more carefully. He's for them, and then he is clearly against them. In anger, God has placed them under a cloud. And to be clear, that's a cloud of judgment. How do we know this? Listen to the phrases that the prophet uses in that portion of text we just read. Verse 1, in his anger, he's cast down the splendor. Verse 2, God is without mercy, showing wrath. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger their might. And also in verse 3, God has withdrawn his right hand. Now, if you know the imagery of the right hand, that is a place of favor. There's anger, there's casting down of splendor, there's a lack of mercy, there is wrath, there's fierce anger. You guys get the idea? In verse 4, it says, He has sent his bow like an enemy. God's fire that was once a symbol of his presence, a sign of his protection on his people, is now turned against his people. And if you are engaged this morning with your mind or with your heart, make no mistake, what I just told you is terrifying. And yet... And yet this very truth helps us see the first of three truths about God's character. And the first one is this. God is righteous in pouring out his anger. God is righteous when he pours out his anger. So as, we, as you and I reflect upon this truth, it might cause us, some of us in this room to say, I, I want no part of that. I want no part of that. I am not interested in worshiping an angry God. Who wants to draw near and, and open themselves up to a God who exhibits this kind of anger? That's a real emotion. That's a real thought. Especially when we are in the middle of a series of lamentations where we're acknowledging our hurt and our pain, our troubles... And yet there is a distinct purpose for God's anger. The purpose is to move you and I to a place of mourning. God desires that we would move to a place of mourning. To get us away from just thinking about God's judgment and judging Him for doing it. Wow, that doesn't seem fair. to cause you and I to actually reflect upon the depth and the significance of our sin. And to get us to recognize that God's anger should move us to a place of mourning and grieving. So believer, let me ask you, 
to move from this Old Testament context of lamentations to move into our context today on Memorial Day weekend right here in White Lake. Allow me to ask you a very personal spiritual question. When was the last time you mourned over your sin? When was the last time you were brought to tears by your brokenness, your gossip, your slander, your lies, your lust, your covetousness, your pride? When was the last time that you rightfully looked at those and saw that they are an offense to a loving and holy and righteous God? When was the last time that you grieved your sin? When we consider our sin our lack of faithfulness to our covenant with a holy God, it should bring us to a point of grief and mourning. It should bring each of us to a point of lament when we grieve, when we mourn the sin in our lives. That's the purpose of God's anger. He desires that we would mourn our sin. Now, I've got good news. God does not leave us there. We're still not out of the woods yet, but God does not leave us there. So let's look back at our text. Let's look at verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. And they raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. So he stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. You'd say, well, pastor, I thought it was going to get better. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. What verses 5 through 8 there offer is a vivid description of a destruction that God has laid upon Jerusalem and the temple walls within. It's a brutal scene. You can only imagine what movie makers would do with CGI today to capture that scene. It would be brutal, painful. The walls and the gates of the city have been crushed. Houses and palaces were pillaged and burned to the ground. And most importantly, the temple was destroyed. I want you to imagine that for just a moment. The place where God's people met with their heavenly father. 
The place where they would sacrifice as an act of worship was gone. And it was destroyed by God. Clearly, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin and unfaithfulness seriously. So serious that in the New Testament, God revealed both the loving and merciful side of his character and the justice side of his character to deal with this sin and to deal with this unfaithfulness. And he did so at the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul writes these words. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus bore the justice of God in his body on the cross. And he'd say, why? To pay the penalty that you and I could never pay. For what? To redeem us. To make us righteous. God was responsible for the death of Jesus in our place. And that helps us see the second truth about God's character today. God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. God is exhaustive when dealing with the sins of his people. And this is why this kind of cultural idea that, well, sin is really no big deal. It's not a big deal. It shouldn't, it shouldn't cause us a second thought. That's destructive thinking. Because man's sin has consequences. In the Old Testament, we've been able to look in the book of Lamentations in just this small snapshot and see the, the details of the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple. And we get to the New Testament and we see man's sin leads to the brutal death of Jesus, who is the Christ. This is why it's so problematic when you and I just kind of skip over our sin, when we blow it off in some kind of lighthearted fashion. It's not what... God desires. You see, it is the righteousness and the justice of God that finds man's sin so offensive that he sent his one and only son to deal with it for eternity. God sent his son. God was exhaustive. God was aggressive. God was radical in his dealing with our sin. And so you and I should be radical in dealing with it too. Now I want to hit the pause button for just a second. Because I'm guessing that some of us are thinking, wait a second, Pastor, you, you set us up for this lament series. I'm supposed to grieve and I'm supposed to mourn. I feel like I'm getting punched in the face today. We're working through the text. We're confronting the real aspect of our sin. So therefore, we're talking about judgment. Because we're talking about both sides of God's character. You see, when we truly acknowledge our sin, whether the sins are big or small, we have to recognize that they are an offense to a holy and righteous God, and that should, in fact, lead us to a point of repentance.
So let's turn to verse 19 because that's when we see a change. We're going to skip down to verse 19. The prophet writes, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Did you catch the humility that is tied in all of those responses? Get up, arise, cry out, pour out. Lift your hands to him. All of those are physical actions that begin with a heart posture of repentance. All of them. This helps us see this reality of our, of our faith that we find throughout Scripture. Our outward posture and our behavior is always the response of an inner change, of a heart change. That's the beginning, and then it flows out into a physical posture. Arise, he says. This is a call to move from this downcast and hopeless idea and awaken and arise before God. That's the beginning. Cry out in the night, in the midst of the darkness of our sin and in the midst of the darkness of our shame, we are to call out to God in repentance. Pour out your heart. Pour out your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, everything within you for the Lord to be gracious to you. And lift your hands to Him. When our hands are lifted, we have surrendered. So we lift our hands, acknowledging that we have reached the end of ourselves. The heart change before the physical posture change. Church, this guides us to the third truth of God's character today. God is working to bring you and I to repentance. God is working to bring his people to a point of repentance. You see, God desires that all would come to the end of our self-reliance, all would come to the end of our sin, and that we would run to him, that we would rush to him. That we would repent. But this leads us to an obvious question. Repentance is one of those words that is sort of religious and you hear it in the context of the church quite a bit. And yet, sometimes many of us might be sitting there going, well, I think I know what repentance is, but I'm not exactly sure. So what is repentance? Repentance is the radical turning away from anything that hinders our wholehearted devotion to God. I'm going to say that one more time. It is so significant. Repentance is the radical turning away. It's not kind of a weak-hearted, soft turn. It is a radical turning away from anything that gets in the way of our devotion to God. It is not dabbling in sin. If you are walking and you're in sin this way, it is a 180-degree turn to go in the other direction. It's not brushing off the severity of sin, but acknowledging the depths of our offenses. Repentance is turning away from sin. 
and turning to God in love and in obedience. Now, church family, I know this has been rather intense today. But we're going to do some heart work. I didn't say hard work. We are going to do some heart work together. Today, we're going to take a few moments to spend time before a holy and loving and just God with our hearts fully surrendered before Him. We're going to put into practice what Lamentations chapter 2 calls of God's people. So I'm going to start this time with a question. What is it in your life that is hindering your wholehearted devotion to God? What's hindering your obedience? What is hindering your faithfulness? Is it a sin that you've carried for some time and you've done so in silence? Church, now is the time to confess that sin, to repent of that sin. Is there a temptation in your life that you were just on the cusp of stepping over into sin? Confess that temptation. Ask God for renewed strength to turn away. Or perhaps there's someone here today who thinks that they have committed a sin that God cannot forgive. He can. Lay it before him in faith, believing in God's character of love and of grace for you. So in just a moment, our worship team is going to come. And they're going to create a space for us to do that. The stillness of that moment, I want to encourage you to radically turn from anything that hinders your devotion, your faithfulness to God, because it is time for God's people to repent. Not because God's our enemy. Rather, because he welcomes. He welcomes all who come in true repentance. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.